Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your heart and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning for your, your grace. Father, we look to you that, Lord, you would instruct us and lead us and increase our understanding of the words that we have, have just read, uh, that, Father, our hearts may be encouraged, that, uh, Father, we may be fashioned and molded more and more like our Savior, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his precious name. Amen and amen. Well, it's been a few weeks since we've been in Romans, and uh, I've kind of stopped in a place in Isaiah 9. It's kind of like right in kind of the middle, and I did that on purpose. Uh, um, i really wanting to kind of vacillate back and forth between Romans uh, and that passage in, in Isaiah as we study Romans, especially as we go through chapters uh, 1, 2, and 3. Uh, Paul puts forth the fallen human condition there in, in graphic detail. And uh, I figure after a few sermons in here, we're going to be in need of a wonderful counselor. And that'll be the very next thing that we look at in Isaiah 9, 6. So uh, I think what we'll do is we'll go back and forth between Romans um, and uh, Isaiah as we go along. Next week, Donald will be uh, bringing a message uh, which will interrupt this a little bit. And when we come back, uh, we'll... We'll look, we'll, we'll look around in Romans 2 a couple more times and then maybe go to uh, Isaiah 9. And I'm thinking this way because I remember uh, when I first started studying at seminary, I was only going part-time. Uh, in fact, the first class I took, I was still completing my undergrad work at Geneva when I took a class at, uh, at seminary. And the second class that I took was... Uh, it was under a professor who was retiring. That was going to be the last class that he was going to teach. He had taught the Gospels for 50 years. He was, uh, uh, it, was a great, it was a great privilege to be able to study uh, with him and under him. And I remember him talking about throughout the course of his ministry, much of which was in, in Rochester, New York, that um, when he preached through Romans, he would typically preach one or two sermons in Romans and then go do something else. And then he would say, because he would do this because he wanted his congregation to come back. And it was uh, kind of a humorous way of saying uh, that, um, you know, we, we can only look at our fallenness for so long, can't we? 
And then we we have to look at the grace of God. We're going to look at our fallenness a little bit uh, this morning, but we're we're certainly going to look at the grace of God. It's been a little while since we have looked at Romans. I think we should take a few moments, review the material that we've looked at, uh, just to bring our minds back up to speed again, but also uh, we become more familiar with it as we repeat this exercise, don't we? Uh, I, I have to go over things and over things and over things in order to get them. And uh, perhaps some of you are like that. Uh, some of us get it right from the start. Uh, but I think for most of us, it requires a little bit of space and repetition, doesn't it? So where have we been? Well, you'll recall in the very first message, I said that Paul begins by establishing his credentials, doesn't he? If you turn back to Romans 1 and you look at verse 1, Paul says right from the start, he says he's a servant of who? He's a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, of course, you've heard me say many times the gospel simply means the good news. We're told that it is the gospel of God. It's not just any gospel. It's God's gospel. So we could put this another way. We could say this is not just any good news. This is God's good news. It's God's good news, verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So what Paul is bringing to us here is not just the latest fad that came through the Roman Empire. Uh, Paul has not just been off to some church planning conference somewhere where he got the, the, the latest Fortune 500 influenced church growth techniques. Uh, no, by the time that Paul is writing Romans, the message of the gospel is already an ancient message. It has been proclaimed beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. It's proclaimed by the prophets of old. And, and I always think of Isaiah, actually. Uh, I don't isolate Isaiah, but my mind always goes to Isaiah when I think in terms of messianic prophecy. Why? Be it's not because all of the other prophets don't contain, don't have messianic prophecy. They do. But I think we find more of it in Isaiah than we do in all the others. My mind always goes to Isaiah, and we've been studying Isaiah, haven't we? Isaiah has so much to say about the gospel, and it was written approximately 700 years before the coming of Jesus. Proclaimed beforehand through the prophets. And this is no easy matter for the skeptic to refute. I mean, the gospel is an ancient message. The coming of the Messiah was proclaimed centuries before he came in great detail. Now, no human being can do that. Do you, you ever watch, usually it's around the end of the year or the beginning of the new year when uh, some net networks and news stations will kind of run, okay, what did the experts predict would happen? Have you ever seen any of those kinds of things? And it's really something, isn't it? Well, the experts all said that this was going to happen and this was going to happen. And by the year 2000, it was going to be like this. And by the year 2010, it was going to be like this. And it's really silly, isn't it? How much of it uh, is not even close to reality? No, no person, no mere human being or group of human beings can predict the future. Yet we have all of these prophecies in great detail that are attesting to the, to the coming of the Messiah. 
Now, in verses 3 and onward, Paul shows that the gospel centers on Christ. If you look at verse 3, it says concerning his son. It's concerning his son. He's descended from David according to the flesh. He's declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection. You see that? Verse 4. Now, I've said this many times, the gospel is not about what we do. The gospel is about what Jesus does. But uh, we should qualify that when we say that. uh, Because part of sharing the gospel is calling people to embrace uh, Christ, isn't it? And that is something that we do. So uh, sometimes you'll hear me say, the, the gospel is not about what we do, it's about what Jesus does. That is fine as long as we understand that when we're sharing the gospel with one another, we really need to be calling people and persuading people to embrace Jesus by faith, don't we? Uh, and that is certainly something that we do. But back to the center, the gospel concerns uh, Christ Jesus. He was gloriously raised from the dead on the third day. Uh, And furthermore, it's by the way of the resurrected Christ that Paul receives his commission. Uh, His charge comes in the second part of verse 5. Notice in the second part of verse 5, the words to bring about the obedience of faith. Do you see that there? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. We must never forget that the aim of salvation is to bring about the obedience of faith. Um. I think it's easy to forget that. We, we just think about, okay, the fact that we're saved from the wrath to come and that that's the aim of, this, of salvation. Actually, Paul's telling us it's, it's the obedience of the faith. It's to bring about the obedience of faith. We really defame Jesus when we profess to be his and we live in sin and disobedience. And Paul's going to talk about that in chapter 2, actually, in verse 24, when we get there. Uh, we'll, we'll look at that in its proper time. Now, if we skip down to verses 16 and 17, we, we have what is often called the thematic statement of Romans, where Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel. It's, it's the righteousness of God. It's revealed from faith for faith. And then what follows is a presentation of the gospel, which is God's gospel. And it begins with a scathing description of, of the sinful nature of humanity. Um, You know, Paul begins his gospel presentation quite differently than many of the gospel presentations that we commonly hear. Um, He begins in verse 18. What's the first word? Uh, For the wrath of God uh, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And it's really from this point all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, that Paul will harp on that, he'll, he'll pluck on that string, won't he? He develops the, the depths of, of, our, of our fallen sinful nature. Uh, and we, we have that theme running through, and we have another theme kind of running alongside it, that uh, basically God is, is righteous and just to be pressing his judgment upon us. Uh, due to this rebellion. Uh, Verse 19 makes it clear that all humanity uh, knows that God exists through what has been made. I mean, we can look out the window and see everything that's been made. And and, uh, you you know this one. Uh, Surely uh, someone made um, 
someone made this, some divine architect has made this. We can conclude that without the scriptures. We can conclude that without the assistance of, of the Bible. Uh, we can look around and, and God has put that in our hearts that everyone knows that, that he exists. But we push back against that. Uh, we push back against that with uh, rebellious uh, things, uh, with rebellion. And in verse 20, Paul says that uh, we are without excuse. And we might hold on to this idea of being without excuse here uh, because we're going to be seeing that again in a few moments. Then Paul moves on to describe the wickedness of humanity. Verse 21, we're thankless. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And in our fallen and unbelieving state, we're thankless. In our falling and unbelieving state, we're out of touch with reality. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, uh, we become fools. Uh, in our fallen state, we're intoxicated in idolatry. Verse 23, and in our fallen state, we're given over to lustful passions. Verses 24 to 31. And uh, uh, that brings us up to uh, chapter 2 and verse 1 with this review in mind. Let's look at our text. Uh, the Apostle Paul says there, uh, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Now, before we go any further, I want to point out to you that there's something going on here that's probably not obvious to any of us unless we have a King James Bible open. Do we have any King James Bibles open this morning? Um, I know a couple of you read from the King James. I didn't know if anyone had one open. If you did, you would be reading in verse 1 of chapter 2, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. Maybe you can hear in that I'm emphasizing the vows. Why am I doing that? I want to draw your attention to the fact that the Apostle Paul, who has been speaking in the plural since verse 18 of chapter 1, is now speaking in the singular in chapter 2, verse 1. He's switching from plural to singular. Um, in, and we won't see this in the ESV or any of our modern uh, English Bibles. And the reason we won't see it is because we've lost the ability in, the, in modern English to discern between you singular and you plural. You know, we're dependent on the context in order to, uh, to show us. And the context is not always clear, is it? It's not always clear. When I was studying Greek in seminary, uh, one of the things that, you know, our, our exams often would have Greek sentences and we'd be required to translate them into English. And when we came across a second person pronoun or a, a, a participle that was, uh, that was uh, uh, in the second person, we would have to uh, distinguish whether it was singular or plural. And we would do this by using the Pittsburgh slang word, yuns. Yuns. And it was hilarious because our professor, I mean, maybe one of these days we'll get him to come and, and preach. He, he's one of the most intelligent persons that I've ever met in my life. And he's an, he's an English 
He's a, a language. He has a PhD in, in language. Yuns is not the kind of word that comes out of his mouth very often. But he was, he's a playful guy. He's a very fun guy to be around. And uh, he would say, you know, in your exams, when you want to distinguish between singular and plural, please let me know that you realize this is plural. Put in yuns. <laughs> That's how we did it. So we said yuns. Um, Paul doesn't, the ESV translators don't do that for us. Um, they just use you. Now, what am I getting to with all of this? Paul's been speaking in the plural all the way since verse 18. He's been using the word they. They, 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 they. And then all of a sudden in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, thou. You singular. Now, a question suddenly surfaces. Who is Paul talking to? We get to they. He's talking to all the, you know, they, sinful humanity. He's talking to, there's no, to all of us. But when he comes to chapter 2 and verse 1, who is he addressing? Well, he's addressing the guy who is saying amen. You know, the preacher's preaching and he says something, all of a sudden you hear amen. And he says something else and the guy goes, amen. And he says something else and the guy goes, amen. Amen, brother Paul. Preach it, brother Paul. Now, don't, don't think for a moment here. There's our amen. <laughs> don't think for a moment that there's anything wrong that Paul is saying that there's necessarily anything wrong with saying amen if you're so moved to do so. That's not the point. The point is, what is this man saying amen to? Paul's been talking about judgment. He's been talking about judgment. You know? Even though we knew God exists, even though they know God exists, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Therefore, God handed them over. Amen, Brother Paul! And they're given over to all of these, these lusts and all of this. Amen, Brother Paul! They've been given over to a debased mind to do what I know. Amen, Brother Paul! Now, what's going on in, that, in the spirit of all of that? The word condemnation isn't coming up, but it is a spirit of, of condemnation, isn't it? Condemn those idolaters. Condemn those homosexuals. Condemn those who are suppressing the truth and wickedness. Condemn the greedy, the unrighteous. Condemn the slanderers, those haters of God. Condemn them. Amen, Brother Paul. Preach it. And before we get too hard on this guy, we might think of sometimes when maybe we've been watching the news or when we've been hearing about the fall of someone else and in our hearts we didn't use the word condemned we're too sophisticated for that we know that's not good but still that spirit's alive and well in our hearts isn't it that's who Paul's speaking to and this becomes much more convicting as we follow Paul's line here look at verse 1 again let's look at the rest of it he says therefore you have no excuse O man every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you, this is still singular, it's all singular. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practices the very same things. 
the very same things. Here's the critical indictment. You have no excuse. I told you we would come to that again. Uh, there's a lot of lessons that can be learned out of that little phrase. You have no excuse. And again, I'm going to remind you that the pronoun is singular. So the one who is giving his amen to the condemnation, Paul is pronouncing, he is the man who is without excuse. And we say, well, why, you know, how is that? How is he a man uh, who is without excuse because he is condemning himself? And we might say, well, well, how is he condemning himself? Well, he's condemning himself because he does the same things that he's condemning others for. Uh, I think the greatest illustration of this in the scriptures is found in 2 Samuel 12. You know, it's the story of King David's affair with Bathsheba. You know, and in 2 Samuel 11, King David, he's, he's on the roof of his palace. And the, the army of Israel is out at war. David should be out at war with them. He's, he's got this idle time and he's on, the, he's on the roof of his palace and he notices over on a neighboring roof there's this beautiful woman and she's bathing and um, he calls for her and she's brought to his palace. He has an affair with her and she becomes pregnant. She's the wife of one of his most loyal and valiant soldiers. He tries to cover it up, and when everything fails, he has the soldier killed, her husband killed, and he takes her to be his wife. And all seems to be going well. And then we turn the page to 2 Samuel 12. And that's where the Lord sends Nathan the prophet to David. And he says, David, you know, there's this man, you know, he's in a certain city and uh, he's got all, he's a rich man. He's got all kinds of sheep and flocks and herds. And, and uh, there's this other guy, he's poor. He only has one sheep, but he, he loved the sheep like it was a daughter. He fed it from his hands. And, and the, the rich man had a guest show up, you know, and he wanted to, he wanted to cook up a, a, good, a good meal for his guest, but he didn't want to slaughter one of his own sheep. So, he took the sheep off the poor man and, and he prepared it for his guest. And uh, how's David react whenever he hears this? What does David, what does David say? David immediately says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He deserves to die. And Nathan, this had to have been very scary for Nathan. Nathan looked at David and said, well, David... You are the man. What, what did David do? In condemning the rich man in this story, he condemned himself, didn't he? Now, how often are we guilty of this? You know, as I was thinking of applications of this kind of thing, I kept thinking about being behind the wheel of the car. Because I think this is one of the places where this comes up all the time. You're driving down the road and somebody in front of you pulls some kind of stunt. And sometimes we verbalize our displeasure for that stunt. Sometimes we simply keep it to ourselves. But how many times have we pulled the same stunt? And <laughs> I don't need to go down through any kind of list. I think that... It's, it's quite amazing that the sins that we are prone to, um, the sins that we often commit ourselves are, are the sins that we are so quick to judge others for. You ever notice that? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Some of our own personal vices 
are the things, the things that we do over and over again are, are the things we have the least amount of patience with in others when they do them. You ever notice that? Well, Paul is certainly not calling into question here God's judgment. If you look at verse 2, he says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. So the, the issue here is, I mean, you remember, right, we got two themes going along here. We've got, we got the, the, the terrible depravity of the human condition, the fallen human condition. And, and along, running alongside of that is God's righteousness in judging it. You know, His righteousness in judging it. Paul says we know that the judgment of God rightly, you see that in verse 2? It rightly falls on those who do such things. So it's not a question here. I mean, there's no question that these judgments are righteous. And then Paul has another word for the man with the amens. He says, okay, you're in the back, you know, you're the one with the amens back there. Hey, verse 3, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them themselves, that you're going to escape the judgment of God? Again, the pronoun is singular. And here we begin to come to the the heart of the matter. What is the heart of the matter? It's very core. It's a problem with it's a problem with a a hard attitude, an attitude that I'll call presumption. I don't know that's the best word for it, but I'm using it because that's that's the word that we have in verse four. Look at verse four with me. You know, in fact, if we look at verse three and verse four together. Oh man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do themselves. Uh, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume? You see that? Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The Greek word that's translated by the SB as presume, it means to despise or scorn or think very little of. So we could say, do you think very little of the riches of God's kindness? That kindness that leads him to be patient with you. The kindness that leads him to forbear with you or to be long suffering with you. Uh, the man who is yelling, Amen, Paul, condemn them, has forgotten or he's never put it together that he's able to live, breathe, and yell, Amen, because God is patient with him and has never dealt with him as his sins deserve. Right? Furthermore, he's thinking very little of this kindness. This kindness is not intended to lead us to pronounce condemnation to others who are guilty like us. It's meant to lead us to repentance, isn't it? Jonathan Edwards understood this as a really young man. He had a lot of personal resolvements. Uh, I, I can't remember how many there were, but there was a lot of them. And one of them, one of them, I remember reading through his resolvements years ago, and this one stuck with me. I've never f- forgotten it. He was resolved that upon hearing of the sin of another, that he would immediately think of his own sin. As soon as he heard of the sin of another person, he would immediately think of his own personal sin. Well, what about us? I mean, the application is obvious, I think. I don't think I need to develop it much or even mention it. I mean, every time we embrace this inner attitude, this harsh spirit, we're we're not only out of touch with the gospel, 
we're actually uh, thinking very little of God's kindness towards us, aren't we? Um, Verse 5 gives us the divine prognosis. I mean, we do this because our hearts are hard and impenitent. What's the cure? Uh, The cure is an awakening. It's awakening of God's kindness towards us, which is expressed in his patience with us. You know, it's amazing that our hearts are such, they're wired as such, that we want God to be terribly patient with us, yet we're not always so concerned about him being so patient with other people, are we? What is the, what is the, the cure to this? Well, it's an awakening of the goodness, forbearance, and patience of God uh, towards us. We, we, I think a good place to start would be uh, to look at Ezekiel. You know, um, that might not be the first thing that came to your minds. You know, you may, how many are thinking about Ezekiel right now? Well, how about Ezekiel 18, verse 32? You don't need to turn there. Just listen. It reads this way, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Or Ezekiel 33, 11, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Or the passage that we read this morning from Luke 19. And I promised you I'd develop the context. The context is Jesus is descending down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem in what the church has historically called his triumphal entry. And at one point he looks upon the city of Jerusalem. And what does he do? He weeps. This is the heart of God towards wicked humanity. It's one of tears. The only one who's in the right to pronounce condemnation is the one who takes no pleasure in doing so. There's only been one person who's ever lived a righteous life, and that's Jesus of Nazareth, isn't it? One person. And he did not come to judge the world the first time, did he? Came to save it. And this act of kindness, forbearance, and patience is meant to lead us to repentance. But our Savior will return. I mean, verse 5, you know, when He returns, He'll wield His justice and righteous judgment. He will return in judgment. You'll see that in verse 5. But my point in this whole talk is to reveal the danger of presumption, the danger of thinking so little of God's kindness. I mean, this is the man's problem and this is our problem. Um, And for those who have never repented, this is a dangerous problem. It's a very dangerous problem. Could you think of a more dangerous problem? Um, Thinking in our hearts that others deserve condemnation is not, you know, let me put it this way. The fact that that we deserve condemnation is really, um, uh, the fact that sinful humanity deserves condemnation is not the issue. Uh, the issue is being blind to the fact that we deserve it too. Being blind to the fact that we deserve it too. But God has been patiently withholding it. 
You know, Jonathan Edwards' resolve is, illustrates it so well. I mean, when we hear about the sin of another person, is it our first? Is it our first reaction to think about our own sin? I don't think. Edwards was resolved to do this. Why was he resolved to do this? Because he had to push hard. He had to push hard. Push hard against what? Push hard against that fallen tendency uh, to to execute judgment upon another person. That's our natural tendency, isn't it? I think. And it's going to vary in degrees. It's, it depends a lot on our personal constitution. And it depends a lot on the, the, the circumstances. But that is something that has to be pushed back against. And, and uh, so often we inwardly pronounce judgment. And it's reflective of a hard and unrepentant heart that's out of step with the gospel. But this takes us to the heart of the matter, but also takes us to the cure. The heart of the matter and the cure are one and the same here. I mean, let's think about this. You know, what is the cure for this? It's applying the gospel to it. That's always the cure to this. Let's apply to the gospel to it. How do we apply the gospel to this? Look to the cross. Who is hanging on the cross? Uh, the one who's hanging on the cross is the only one. He's the only one that had the right to pronounce judgment. And what is he doing at the cross? He's stepping in our place. Demonstrating kindness and mercy and love, isn't he? If we cannot admit that we belong on the cross, if we can't admit that we deserve condemnation, we have no part of Jesus, do we? We just simply have no part of it. May it never be so of any of us. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the bittersweetness of this message, Father, um, as we learn about our hearts. Father, that's the bitter pill that we swallow, Lord, as we learn about the fallen nature of our hearts. But Father, the sweetness is the fact that you have come to save sinners. The sweetness is the fact that uh, you are the only one who could rightly pronounce judgment and condemnation. But you demonstrated such great, such great patience and love and mercy towards us that you came uh, to save us. Uh, and, oh, Father, we pray that you will fill our hearts with this afresh this morning, Lord. Fill our hearts with this afresh. <clears throat> that, Father, um, that we may, uh, uh, with Jonathan Edwards, may uh, find a new resolvement. That upon hearing of the falling of another person, our first thought uh, would be to think about the great kindness and patience that we enjoy from your hand. So, Father, we ask that, Lord, you would be pleased uh, to work these graces in our hearts. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen.